Few people have had the front row seat to international adoption the way Ginger Pleasant has. From watching children join their forever families at an airport as a child, to explaining the reality of special needs adoption to a family as the head of Dillon International Adoption Agency, Ginger has watched the international landscape evolve over her entire lifetime. She has insight into where adoption has been and where it might go, this time on Adoption Uncovered. Can you just start with um, introducing yourself and telling us who you are? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Ginger Pleasant, and um, I'm currently the executive director at Dillon International. Um, I actually worked at Dillon for about 20 years, about five years ago, and then uh, moved to Texas. I got married, and then I worked in the foster care industry and also with uh, refugees in Texas. And then Dylan contacted me interested in doing domestic adoption. So I'm back at Dylan. I would love to talk to you about your path. You've been in adoption for a long time. I'd like love to know how mm. did that start? How did that interest start with you? It's kind of interesting. I feel like it kind of picked or chose me. I was going to school for social work and my aunt's approached me. She was like, Hey, why don't you come and do your internship at Dillon? And I'm like, Ooh, that sounds really boring. <laughs> I don't think I want to just sit at a desk all day, I, all day and just talk to people about adoption. <laughs> of course, 25 years later, obviously I fell in love with it. Um, had no idea what all Dillon did and was doing even back then. And I was just hooked. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing journey to be a part of. Um, kind of looking back as a young girl, my, actually my aunt and uncle are the co-founders at Dillon. And so when I was a little girl, I would travel to Tulsa um, for vacation. <laughs> I grew up in a really small farm town. So coming to Tulsa was like New York city, like, Oh, it was always so exciting. But every time I came to Tulsa, we would go to an amusement park, which had roller coaster rides and log rides and all the cotton candy that you would want as a young child. And then we would also go and see the play Oklahoma. Then Almost always, we would go to the Tulsa International Airport. And I, of course, as you can imagine, as a little girl, I was always so confused. Why are we going to the airport again? But back in the 70s and 80s, families would come through Tulsa. Um, at that time, it was mainly uh, in the Korea program. And so even as a young girl, I was impacted by just watching that and seeing that happen. Those were the days where you could actually go up to the runway in the airport. And so I would see these families that looked like me, but adopting children that didn't look like them, crying and being happy. And I thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like, I want to do that someday. Um, but as I said, as I got older, and when they approached me about interning at Dillon, I was like, I kind of grew out of that a little bit, I guess. Um, but no, I started interning at Dillon and didn't leave <laughs> for almost 20 years. So 
The adoption programs at Dillon start with relationships. Connections were made with people in other countries, and often those connections had nothing to do with bringing children to America to be adopted. The initial programs funded scholarships for school and food for lunches. Humanitarian aid is often an unseen side effect of international adoption. How does that work? How do you maybe start a relationship and continue it? Sure. Gosh, I've got a lot of examples. Um, I wasn't at Dillon when we um, developed the India program, but it, again, I always kind of say back in the day, because that was back in the 80s, really what occurred was someone from India, an orphanage director, reached out to Dillon um, just needing help. Um, just saying, hey, I literally have the, I wish I could find it, but it's an old, like that oniony, oniony paper fax. It was a, a fax just saying, hey, we, we need some help. We have all these children. And it wasn't about adoption. It was just obviously funding um, a lunch program. Um, so it was more, how can we help feed the children and, and keep them healthy and alive more so than about adoption. And then it did turn into adoption um, as we grew that relationship with that specific orphanage. And um, we would make a lot of trips there, just got to know them. They got to know us. Um, and a lot of times, I think, especially for India, I can really attest to it. Um, they really did want to know where the children were going. They wanted to trust that we were doing our jobs and vetting a family. Um, it wasn't uncommon for them to ask questions about maybe what was in a home study about a family, which actually I loved because it told me they were reading <laughs> They're reading the home study. They want to make sure, hey, do you really think this is going to be a good fit um, for this child and this family? Um, another relationship um, for Vietnam is a good example. Um, a lot of that, that program started because a Vietnamese uh, American came to Dillon wanting to give back to her country and desperately wanted to know if there was anything Dillon could do to help her do that, to go back and, and give back to her country. And so at that time, Dylan invested, invested in her and her dream. And so literally, she went back to Vietnam, started building relationships with different orphanages, um, not a lot of orphanages, but just some. And that grew that program. And we, again, provided humanitarian aid. We did heart surgeries, um, educational scholarships. So a lot of that, that relationship started first before adoption started. One of the really cool things about Dylan that I'll share um, that I do think is different or that I know is different from other agencies, I would say maybe my understanding 25, 30 years ago when families were adopting, you know, Dylan recognized there were challenges after the child was placed for adoption and recognizing like, we need to do something. We, we don't want to just be that adoption agency that just, here's your child good luck, um, recognize that our families were struggling and our, our kids were struggling just with the adoption piece and that trauma and that hard space. And so one of the things that Dylan, I think, does really well is we offer the heritage camps every summer. We're getting ready to venture off into Texas. And then um, we do support groups. We do birthland tours. Um, any way we can stay connected to, to our families and to the adoptee which is our mission, which is touching those served by adoption. Um, so it's one of those things where some people say, well, what makes Dylan different? And I would definitely say our post-adoption services that we have them. 
Anyone who has been around international adoption for a few years has likely realized that it's been changing. International adoptions have been becoming more rare and taking longer to complete. Ginger has been able to watch this change firsthand and can tell us what she sees. One, one thing I know is like uh, international adoption and just that whole sphere has really changed a lot. I feel like I keep yes. hearing about how there's fewer and fewer international adoptions. Yes. And I'd love to hear about that from your perspective about what things were like when you were starting out compared yes. to how they are now. Perspective, just what I've heard from mainly the, the central authorities we worked with is that domestic adoption is occurring, which is great. Like that's one of the things that Dylan kind of pioneered early on was we were, our, we were hopeful. And again, this was before I started, but hopeful that that would help spur domestic adoptions. If, if the country saw other people adopting internationally and like in Korea, now the domestic adoption has skyrocketed compared to what it was way back in the day when, when we were doing a lot of adoptions, India, I was just talking with the India director and she said that there's gosh, over thousands of dossiers for domestic families that want to adopt domestically, which for India, that was unheard of. Like, I just, I love it so much just because that gives a child an opportunity to stay in their country, to, to obviously grow up in that heritage, heritage and culture, but just seeing that mindset change just to me is something to celebrate. Um, I know each country, of course, it still is different, but those are the ones that I worked with more closely was India and Vietnam, um, Ghana. I worked with that one quite a bit. But the other ones like China, Korea, I don't work with those as much. Um, since I've come back to Dillon, I do understand that in Korea, there are more domestic adoptions occurring. Same thing in China. And plus, my understanding is that China no longer has the one child policy um, in certain. So that's that's helped, obviously, because they don't have to, of course, make an adoption plan if they already have one child. So a lot of different factors um, are, are coming into play. So, yeah. But overall, you look at it as a, a positive thing. Like just because us For Americans sure. aren't adopting doesn't mean kids are going without homes. Right. And we still, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, hearing adopt, domestic adoptions, you know, having an uptick in any country, I think is just, it's so cool because that's always been the hope. Dylan is celebrating, we're celebrating our 50 years this year, 50 years of providing and, and being involved with those touched by adoption. And of course, like I said, I've only really been involved probably the last 25, but just the stories and paper, I mean, there's so many stories I read about Dylan and, and different families. And I'm like, wow, like you came from a, a, an era where they needed help. They were desperate. You know, they, no one's adopting the, the children or they need homes. No one. And just, it really kind of was more out of like, Hey, we're doing this because it's a need. And now it's not that it's not a need, but it definitely has changed. And for me, we're again, specifically the countries I've worked with seeing the India population in terms of just being more open is something I don't think I ever thought really, <laughs> not that it would never happen, but just pretty exciting so yeah so I wonder then do you find that you have a surplus of of families in America who are just not able to adopt now since there are not as many children available yeah I mean 
you know, some of the countries like Vietnam, for example, we have a, a quota that we're able to basically a quota of this year. I think we have a quota of nine, meaning we're they'll match nine families this year that the central authority in Vietnam will, net, will match nine of our families, but we can place children that may have significant special needs that are that outside of that quota for India, the majority are special needs that we place, which really, to be honest, I feel like that it's always been that case <laughs> for, for most of the countries. Um, I will say the families, more the families, it seems like are, may not be open to special needs placement. So that's definitely hindered some of the interest. Um, but then we have some amazing families that they're fine with that and, and are able to do that. So I think it's a little bit of both, I guess, maybe families not maybe comfortable with the special needs aspect, knowing that the majority of the countries we work with, and I can even attest to the other agencies, not all, all of the agencies, but most of our programs are special needs based. And families, I think, you know, would prefer if they're able to choose or to know if a child has special needs or not, would probably prefer maybe not to go with this because of that reason. There's been some changes in rules surrounding adoption too over the years. I feel like some of the changes have been making things um, more strict or are yes. they harder to work around? And do you do yes. you view that as like a positive thing? Like it's weeding out bad actors or do you think it's just more red tape? Gosh, that's a good question. I would say a little bit of both. I mean, I will say the rules in certain countries, again, I can really only attest for the ones that Dylan's worked with, like, you know, India went through huge, gosh, huge regulation change, maybe about five or eight years ago, when I was kind of speaking to the fact that we couldn't work with just one orphanage that we'd worked with, gosh, I think we'd worked with ISRC, I think your, your son might be from there, my daughter is as well, yeah. for mm-hmm. 20, like over 20 years. So that was painful for us. I mean, it was painful for her. And, you know, so CARE, the Central Authority in India, this, and we understand, I mean, it, it wasn't a mean thing. It was just, hey, we have other orphanages that need help, <laughs> that need other agencies to work with them. And our whole thing was, well, we trust her. We trust, you know, all of that. And basically, well, you got to learn how to trust some other ones as well. Um, and they continue, though, to make changes. Actually, this made some more, I believe. But I feel like it's actually, I mean, it doesn't, the, the thing with changes or when they implement new systems, it always causes a delay, always, in any country. It's just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a delay until they get it figured out or get the process moving. So yes, for sure, it does slow down the process. But I also do think if there are agencies that are working there and they're only interested in the adoption piece, it could weed them out. But um, I know Korea right now, they're going through changes, significant changes, also kind of changing the way they, how children are referred going more through a government system than through an orphanage system. Or So again, that change is happening and it's causing delays. Um, you know, it's, I just, I wish I could give you a solid answer. I do think it does weed some out, but I actually seeing in the past how things maybe it, it, I think it's out of the betterment, to be honest. I know they're doing it to better the process and to make sure that people are on the up and up. I don't ever think that they, 
are purposely putting things in place that will keep children from being adopted per se? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Charlotte. I'm trying to, you can tell I'm waffling back and forth. I think it just depends. Like, I think what, what India did was great. I do. I mean, it, it, unfortunately it caused major delays, but I think it was great because it forced us to, to go out to other agents. I mean, other orphanages, um, I think what Korea is going through is what India went through a few years back. I think in the all, eventually it's going to be a good system, but it's going to take time to get there. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure some would disagree and say, no, it's horrible because it's delaying a child coming home. And I'm like, yes, but it's also, you know, keeping children safe, safeguard against sex trafficking and human trafficking, you know? So it's, I don't ever want to see a child being delayed coming home, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes that happens. Do you find, because I know trafficking and adoption are, are like next door neighbors, like people really, do, do you come across instances where you see bad things going on or you, or, or does it feel like it's, you're right there? Like, yeah, you know, work against I, it? I think because I left Dylan, I actually worked, um, for organization we did, it was called, um, well, best way to put it, international foster care. So we actually helped place ch- um, immigrant children from the border as well as overseas refugees into foster homes. And the, and most of them would be between 14 and 17. And there, in placing that child in a home, we heard a lot. I mean, a lot about being trafficked. I mean, actually, there probably wasn't one child that hadn't experienced that. Now that's on the, the, again, that's not international adoption. It's on the, the different programs for, you know, getting them housing and keeping them safe once they cross the border. Um, But for international adoption, you know, for me personally, and for Dylan, I can at least attest, we have not experienced a child, I mean, an older child coming home claiming that I would never say it's never happened, but, and you know, that's kind of where the Hague comes in, right? Like when the Hague started being implemented, which was painful <laughs> for all of the agencies years ago, but that's part of the Hague is making sure there's those safeguards, helping children not to be in the, the trafficking um, arena or not being trafficked. I mean, we had, I was trying to think what, what country, I think it was Ghana. If I remember correctly, I think it was gone out. I was, I was on a trip there and I was speaking to, gosh, so many, some officials. And I was just so taken aback because they had said something like, um, how do we know that you're not going to just traffic our children? And um, it, it just shocked me. I'm like, oh my goodness, I would, we, we would never do that. But they're like, yeah, but it happens. And I'm like, Yes, it happens. And I, so I kind of explained the process. I'm like, for the families that we vet, explaining they have to pay <laughs> to have a home study done. They actually have to pay, you know, for services. And I said, I am not an expert, but most people who pay to want to adopt are not traffickers. Not saying that doesn't happen, but I said, you know, for us and other agencies in the States, we have a pretty big vetted process, like background checks and reference letters. I mean, for us, we have what's called a social work committee meeting and we'll bring families to the meeting that we're like, oh, you know, concerned about maybe, or just, hey, help me process this. What do you guys think? And there are families that we have chosen not to work with and not because they were traffickers, but just that we just didn't feel like would be a good fit um, 
for 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 a child for us to place a child in our home or for Dylan. Um, but going back to Ghana, I was just I was surprised. I was like, oh my goodness, why would you know? But I thought, but they don't trust us. They don't know. You know, they they heard these things and they're and it is true. It happens. But I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know how to. So I did. I went. I don't know if they, you know, again, it was fine after the meeting, but it really kind of shook me up a little bit. Like, oh my gosh, they really thought that we would do that. Going forward already, the landscape for adoption has changed a lot. Um, And where would you like to see it go as far as the um, international programs? Would you like to see us doing more aid and them adopting domestically or still bringing children here? Gosh, ideas. where I would like to see it go. I mean, I, I do believe just based on kind of the landscape and the numbers, I do believe that international adoption will probably continue to, to be a, you know, decrease in numbers, but I don't think it'll ever go away. I think there will always be a need. Um, I just think there'll always be a need in terms of the humanitarian aid piece and adoptions. I think it is going to depend on the country, meaning some countries don't want you doing humanitarian aid and adoptions because it may be construed as, oh, you're doing that. So you can adopt. So you have favor to adopt children. So, you know, that that's not at all what, what we do, obviously. But I, I think that some have the tendency to think that or don't want that. I know, again, for India, Again, we weren't able to do that after they, they were saying, hey, no more just working with one, aid, one organization or one orphanage. We were no longer really able to contribute to the humanitarian aid to that orphanage because that was kind of the new rules they had. Because, And again, this is just my words. I don't think it was, I think in their minds are like, yeah, but that also could just keep you getting referrals too because you're providing humanitarian aid. The kiddos that we're seeing more and more definitely have special needs, but sometimes even significant. So as domestic adoptions picks up again in those countries, and I think that's what we're going to start seeing more here. And then for the domestic piece, like I'd stated earlier, I worked in foster care and did do some domestic placements of adoption. And it's tough. (laughs) It's a rough system. But I used to tell people, you know, that the children in other countries honestly have the same some of the same, not all, some of the same issues as our children in foster care, you know, attachment, the trauma piece, just it's hard. There's been some, some mistrust there with, with either adults or whomever in their lives. Um, so it's not to, for Dylan, at least for the way we work and the way we train families, it's not going to be, in my opinion, like, oh my gosh, we're not used to placing these types of children. It's like, yeah, we are. We're just doing it here in the States versus um, the countries we work in. Right. So overall, in adoption, it's just seems like it's just not the case anymore that you go out and get a, a young baby from the hospital. Is that you kind mean of for, what we have to look at for adoption going forward? Yeah, you mean for domestic? For, for, for anything, like even, um, I feel like years ago, you could even get an 18-month-old from India at some point point <laughs> yeah and if you do you know if, yeah and if you do and there's not needs attached it's so rare I mean and it's and I often tell people 
you know, you, cause you get those phone calls. Hey, we just met the, I was going to make up a family. We met the Jones family and we want to, <laughs> we want a child like theirs. So it's like, Oh, well, <laughs> then you have to explain, well, that's actually usually not the norm. Um, you'd have to actually come into the program being open to a variety of special needs. Um, so yeah, again, unless there's special needs attached, sometimes we see younger, but gosh, I would say the majority of even our children from Vietnam this year, almost all were probably over five. I think there was a one four-year-old, five, seven, nine, and up. For Korea, I know the, the little girl that came home in June was, I think she was about three. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we used to see infants out of India, out of Vietnam, out of China, even Haiti, not so much. Um, I'm just thinking of the programs right off the top of my head to where now the majority are older. Ginger doesn't just oversee adoptions and international aid. She's an adopted mom herself. Her advice to all of us is to make sure we show compassion to all struggling parents. When I went through my own process, I hit every roadblock and then some. I'm a faith walker. I know part of it was just, hey, you need to know what parents really experience. And I always tell people, you know, just be very gentle with your comments. Like some people are really struggling with attachment. And sometimes it's not just the child or the parent is to, to where I feel like some parents may not feel comfortable reaching out like, hey, we're not doing good. Like we're not connecting. We're not attaching. We wish we wouldn't have done this. And just being open and listening and not rush to judgment like, oh, you're the worst parents ever. <laughs> because I mean, it's, it's hard. It's not necessarily easy and beautiful. It, it can get there, but I just would encourage other social workers, other agencies, or just those who might be, have adoptive parents in their circle, not to just assume that they're doing great, or if they're not to just not judge, just to let them talk, let them vent. Sometimes they just need to just have a good cry. And, you know, I learned whenever I was going through the process and when we brought our daughter home, I was literally one of those, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be the first Dylan employee to disrupt an adoption because it was hard. I mean, it was so hard. I came into the office crying and just couldn't pull myself together. And one of our um, more senior social workers, of course, pulled me into her office and she's like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, this is horrible. I don't know why all my other, my, all my adoptive parents tell me how wonderful they're doing and how great they feel. I said, I feel horrible. I don't want to do this. I just, I'm not attaching to her. I'm going to disrupt this adoption. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was just bawling and crying. And she finally just, you know, kind of let me talk. And <laughs> she finally said, Ginger, the way you're feeling is normal. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, it just made me feel so good. Like, oh, so it's okay to feel this way. She's like, absolutely. Like it is not uncommon to feel this way. And then it made me realize I need to have more of those conversations or I hope my adoptive parent parents feel comfortable saying, Hey, we're not doing so good. Like this is not working out or we're challenged. Um, just cause I recognize that the majority of my families just weren't being probably truthful because they were one, you're the adoption agency. <laughs> We don't want you to think we're horrible parents and to where now, you know, after that experience, I'm like, oh my gosh, I know most of my families are going through this, but they don't feel comfortable telling me. Um, so I really tried hard throughout the years when parents would call or 
sometimes I would just ask like, no, really, how are you doing? <laughs> are you okay? Are you like, oh my gosh, why'd we do this? And sometimes they would like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you said that. Yes, we're struggling. Um, so just learning to listen and be present and not to judge and to just let people be human. <laughs> and um, that would probably be my biggest takeaway as for future social workers or just, again, those in the field, just because I would often hear parents or other folks in the industry say, oh my gosh, the, how horrible can you believe they called and said that? And I was always like, well, wait a minute. Now, <laughs> let's not, let's be careful. Like, let's support and love and encourage because um, we are, we want this placement to be successful and not, of course, end up in a disrupted manner. Adoption has changed a lot during Ginger's lifetime. Through her eyes, we can see not only how adoption helps children and families, but also the importance of international aid and offering support to other adoptive families with cultural programs and counseling. All of this is touched by her personal empathy for those raising adopted children. To find out more, look at my website, adoptionuncovered.com, and thank you.